Well, good morning. Notice the color of the tie. Blue. It's a boy. It's a boy. Born at 321 yesterday, 7 pounds, 2 ounces, almost 20 inches long. You know, they say grandparenting is great. We're soon to find out. You get to spoil them and send them home, right? Somebody said if you could just skip the kids and go straight to the grandkids, life would be a whole lot better, right? I said, Melinda, I'm going to pray that this little boy subjects you to everything that you subjected us to. And she said, Mama, please tell Daddy to stop praying that. (laughs) Uh, I'm a little tired this morning. Uh, She was in labor about 13 hours, starting about 2.30 Saturday morning. Um, And then, like I say, yesterday afternoon, 3.20, giving birth. So Anyway, if I fall asleep this morning preaching, just cut out the lights, be real quiet, and just leave me standing up here asleep. But anyway, thank you for your prayers for Melinda and for us. I guess you'll be subjected now uh, to granddad stories all the time, right? In fact, you want to see some pictures? (laughs) We want to continue this morning what we started last week. Uh, You know, I was talking about the Easter message, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and how much of the world does not believe what we believe. So how are we going to uh, get them to believe? What can we do as the church? We know we are to preach the gospel, but the Bible is very clear that we are also to live out the gospel. When they look at our lives, will they see Christ in us? Will they see the reality of the message of the resurrection in us? If they don't, there's a problem. But if they do, if they see the consistency in our message and our lives, they'll be more apt to believe. And so uh, here after Easter, I wanted to bring uh, just a little mini-series out of Ephesians chapter 5 on how we can tend to our witness. By the way, I, I, off the subject, I do want to mention to you the, the bulletin, the 37,000. Uh, there's about another 5,000 now that's added, about 42,000 now to your Annie Armstrong gifts came in this week. Uh, Kevin Ezell, the leader of the North American Mission Board, told me a couple of years ago, I thought for sure he's talking about North Carolina churches, but he said, no, it was nationwide. There's 4,300 North Carolina Southern Baptist churches, 50,000 nationwide. He said, Pitts is in the top 200 nationwide in giving to Annie Armstrong. So you're to be commended uh, for that. We're losing North America. If you're reading much on what's going on, we're losing North America. And so our North American Mission Board is trying to address that. So thank you for your gifts. But talking about the gifts and our witness, how are we going to help people believe? We need to tend to our witness. Let's start reading back in chapter 4, verse 30. And we're going to read down through verse 14 of chapter 5. Would you stand, please, for the reading of God's Word? 
Paul says in verse 30, uh, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along, uh, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience." Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Father, we thank you that you have revealed your heart and your mind to us in your word. As Jesus said to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Lord, open our ears today that we may hear. God, I pray that you would work in our lives in such a way that those around us would see Christ. They would see a people that is responsive to your word. And they would believe our witness. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Oftentimes we tend to think of the Christian life in such bland terms that really do not do the Christian life true justice. We think of somebody simply walking an aisle or taking a plunge in the baptistry and we say, I'm a Christian now or they're a Christian now and hopefully that's true. But from chapter 2 onward in the book of Ephesians, Paul has been taking pains to show us that the Christian life is something that is radical. Because you see, the Christian life involves a transformation, a transformation that begins at our redemption and continues all the way through our lives. 
The Bible says we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but then it goes on to say we've been made alive and we've been quickened. Jesus even used the analogy of a new birth to talk about how extreme this is. He told Nicodemus, Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, born from above, born of the Spirit, he will not see the kingdom of heaven. Folks, you cannot read your New Testament without realizing that something profound and life-altering takes place at conversion. The Bible says if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so we are to be as different as the daylight is from the nighttime. Jesus said, talking about how radical the Christian call is, he said, you can't be my disciples unless you deny yourselves, pick up your cross, and follow me. You can't be my disciple unless you hate your father and mother and sister and brother and even your own life that is compared to how much you love me. Well, in chapter 5, Paul is showing us here how radical the Christian life really is. He told us in verse 1 that we looked at last week that we are to be imitators of God. It's the word from which we get our word mimic. We are to mimic God. There's to be a family likeness in us. As I mentioned last week, we can't mimic God in terms of his incommunicable attributes. Those attributes that belong to God and God alone. Things like his omnipotence and omniscience. But we are to mimic God in those communicable attributes. Things like his love and his mercy and his holiness. Again, folks, if you claim to know Christ and I claim to know Christ, there needs to be a family likeness to our Heavenly Father. The paternity test, the spiritual DNA that shows that God is our Father, is that our lives will look more like Christ. And so Paul says here, we're to love like he loves, we're to forgive like he forgives, and we're to walk as he would walk. We looked at point number one last week, that living to glorify God means walking in love. Today I want us to move on and begin looking at verses 3 and 4, and we're going to see here that living to glorify God means walking in purity. He says in verse 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Look at verse 3 again. If you're truly converted, what does he call us? He calls us saints. 
Now, you may not always feel like a saint. You may not always look like a saint. But the Bible says if you're a born-again Christian, you are a saint. The word literally means you're a set-apart one. You have been set apart now for God's purposes. That's what happened at conversion. God set you apart from all of the masses on earth and said, this one is mine. His name, her name has been written in my book of life from the foundation of the world and so we're to be holy even as God is holy we're to walk in purity now what's that going to look like first of all I want you to see that physically and mentally physically and mentally we are to be pure He says, do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you. We're to be pure physically. Now, we know that the culture at Ephesus was so sensual and so sexual. You know, it's kind of like Solomon said in the book of Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. Well, that certainly applies to sensuality. One thing that has always characterized pagan cultures that don't know God is sensuality. When you look at the history of nations and and what different nations have stood for, it causes one to have great concern for America. You know, there was a time that people said of America that America was a Christian nation. At least America respected Christian values. But folks, look at how things are changing all around us. Our culture is so anti-God, anti-Bible anti-prayer, anti-anything having to do with Jesus Christ. Where there is faith, where there is religion, you know, Americans love a Burger King type Christianity, don't they? Have it my way. We become very sensual as a culture. One writer has described the American culture as a pornographic culture. Pornography, for example, is a multi-billion dollar industry in this land, taking in $100 billion. One of the largest money-making industries in the world, not just America, but in the world, bringing in more money than ExxonMobil, more money than Microsoft, more money than Apple. I read a statistic that truly surprised me. People think that this is a male-only issue. It's not. It's not true. While men still top the list, one of the fastest-growing segments of pornography is among young women, teenage women up through their 20s. They make up one of the fastest-growing segments, and if the statistics are correct, one in three women even from teenage years up, are regular consumers of pornography. And they stay online longer. And what really surprised me was they visit the most hardcore sites. The number one porn site in the country boasted last year that they had almost 100 billion hits to their site. 
And they boasted that if, that if everybody on the planet, 7 billion people on the planet, if you, could, if you could think of how big this problem is, not only in this nation but in the world, uh, if, if every member of the human race, 7 billion people visited their site, they would have visited their site 12.5 times. They said that's how many hits they had to their site. Every second, there are 30,000 hits to porn sites. Every second. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Adding to the disappointment in all this is that studies are showing there is very little difference, almost no difference between those who say they are believers and churched and those who are unbelievers and unchurched. In fact, 47%, 47% of Christian households said that pornography was a problem within their very own household. Sensuality has been one of the hallmarks, not of Christian nations, but of pagan nations. As Paul is writing to the Ephesians, Ephesus was that kind of place. Folks, these cities, these ancient cities we read about in the Bible, they were not backwater places that we might suppose that they were. In fact, in some ways, one could argue that they made greater advances for their time than we even do today. Some of these ancient cities like Athens and Corinth and Rome and Ephesus were quite sophisticated and advanced. They were gifted in disciplines like architecture and engineering and arts and literature. But while they made all of these advancements, they were still very pagan, very idolatrous, and very much given over to sensuality. At Ephesus, they had a temple to uh, Artemis. In the Greek, it was known as the temple to Diana. It was a pagan cult that had immorality built into the worship there that, that, that took place. They had temple prostitutes and those who visited the temple to worship Diana would engage in sexual acts with temple prostitutes because they had this perverted notion that to engage in sex with one of the temple prostitutes at Diana's temple you were somehow or another becoming more one with her business travelers to Ephesus in the first century would receive free passes from companies to visit the temple of Diana sounds 21st century doesn't it it was pretty much accepted and assumed at Ephesus that every man would not only have his wife, but he would have at least one mis mistress. It was just their culture. It was a sinful culture. 
Now folks, to a culture like that, to Christians living in a city like that, look again at what Paul says to them. And and think about how radical these words would have been to people, to Christians living in the culture there at Ephesus. Paul says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. That was a very clear, radical call for the Christians in the church at Ephesus. To be different from the members of their city. So that in that difference and in their purity, they could be salt and light. Folks, I can't think of a more applicable word than this right here to the church in America today. You know, Satan is a counterfeiter. He has taken something that God gave to married couples to be holy and sacred, and he has counterfeited it and twisted it into all sorts of perversion. As I've told you before in messages, sex is not bad. God gave it. He gave it for for procreation. He gave it for enjoyment within the boundaries of marriage. And so it's not dirty, it's not bad, but again it has its boundaries and what Paul is saying here is immorality is out of bounds the word that he uses here is the word from which we get our word pornography but it's broader than that it includes all kinds of sexual sins whether premarital or extramarital it was a big blanket term Romans 1 mentions idolatry as one of those perverted desires. Instead of worshiping the one true God, people become idolaters and they worship themselves. And so immorality, he says, is a form of idolatry. Because you're worshiping the creature rather than the creator. As a part of rejecting God and rejecting God's truth... Along with immorality and idolatry that God gives people over to who have rejected his truth is the fact that God also gives people over to their degrading passions. He says their hearts are filled with lust one towards another. And even the women lust after women and the men after other men. Perversions. And so again, what the New Testament is clearly teaching is that whenever we see immorality in all of its various forms, what we are seeing is the fact that people have been given over to their desires. People think they're autonomous, that they're independent creatures. But the Bible is saying that immorality is evidence that God has actually given you over to your ways to do that which is dishonoring to him. And why has he done that? Because you have rejected his truth. What I want you to see is is this is not a light issue. It's not... It's not an insignificant issue. It is a big deal. It's a serious issue. 
Verse 3, he adds immorality to, uh, uh, yes, immorality or impurity, I should say, to any type of immorality. And we know that this begins in the mind. Jesus said so in the Sermon on the Mount. It's in the mind and in the heart where all of this begins. And then in verse 3, he also adds greed to the list. It might sound odd to add greed to a list where he's talking about immorality, but it's not odd at all. Because when you're greedy for something, you're not content with what you have. You're wanting something else that you don't have a right to. And so there are similarities between greed and sexual sin. Now, the New Testament gives us several different answers for combating all of this, but one very obvious way that Christians are to combat all the immorality in the culture is through Christian marriage. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that because of immorality let each man have his own wife and each wife her own husband and the husbands to look after the needs of the wife the wife look after the needs of the husband and he says there your body is not your own you belong your body belongs to your spouse people people today say my body is my own I'll do with it whatever I want wrong the Bible says first of all your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit you belong to him secondly you belong to your spouse you're third on the list you're not your own you've been bought with a price Christian marriage is one of the main answers that the Bible gives for the problem of impurity and immorality in the culture Well, walking in purity, though, doesn't just involve the physical and the mental. Look at what he says next. He says that verbally we are to be pure. He mentions here filthy and silly talk and coarse jesting. Filthy talk goes right along with the physical immorality and lust that he's just mentioned. The word for filthy uh, talk here implies dirty talk. It might manifest itself in dirty jokes told in a back room at work. You might have heard it referred to as gutter language or sewer language. You've heard me mention before, growing up in Charlotte, I worked at Harris Teeter near my home in the Cotswold area. And, and, And I can testify what the men, when a beautiful woman would come in the store, what the men would say. I've heard it all. I've told you before, one of, I think one of the greatest disappointments, one of the men in the back room, a senior adult man who claimed to be a Christian and was a deacon, a deacon in his local Baptist church, I think was probably one of the greatest offenders when it came to dirty talk. Sad testimony. To this very day, that's what I remember about that man. That's what stands out. Not his Christian witness because he lost his Christian witness. But I remember his talk and how inappropriate it was. Paul says as a Christian that has no place in your life. In Colossians 4 verse 6 he says, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. I want you to think about salt. 
Salt was used in ancient times as a preservative. They didn't have refrigerators and freezers. And so they would put salt on meat so they would preserve it and it wouldn't decay and get all corrupted. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 5, you're the salt of the earth and the light of the world. You're to have a preserving influence. Your talk is to be like salt. I want you to think of your circles of influence at work, at school, and your community. When you gather together with people, what's your, what's your talk like? Does your talk elevate the environment or bring things down? Your words are to be like salt, a preserving influence. Does that describe your talk? Does your talk clean up the air or dirty up the air? Paul goes on to talk about silly talk here. The Greek word is morologia. Uh, logos, we know, uh, logia rather comes from logos and is the word for speech or words. And moro is the word from which we get our word moron. And so he's talking here about more moronic talk. Stupid talk, silly talk. And he says it has no place in the life of a Christian. And then he goes on here to talk about coarse jesting. It's not, it's not referring to harmless and clean humor. There's nothing wrong with wholesome humor. The Bible, after all, says a merry heart doeth good like a medicine. Folks, Christians don't have to go around with long faces refusing to ever laugh or enjoy any humor. Charles Page, First Baptist of Charlotte, used to say some Christians look like they've been, they've been weaned on dill pickles and had a relapse. <laughs> Coarse jesting goes back to the off-color jokes, though. Jokes that are not wholesome and clean. Folks, what you and I say is important because it shows what's in our heart. Jesus talked about that to religious leaders in Mark chapter 7. Remember in Mark chapter 7, they were so concerned because Jesus and his disciples, they didn't do things like washing their hands the way the Pharisees said you were supposed to wash your hands before you ate. Jesus said, do you guys not understand? It's not what goes into your mouth that defiles your body. What defiles your body is what comes out of your mouth because your words and everything else about your life that comes out of your life shows what's in your heart. Your words and my words show what's in our heart. I want you to think about that this week as you're with your school buddies and your office buddies, your words, your talk shows what's in your heart. In general, what do your words say? You know, I, I am absolutely blown away by Christians who get on social media 
and they proceed to bash their friends or gossip about people or they bash a church or whatever it might be. They just go on and on. They hide behind social media to do that. Have they never read Jesus' words about how one day we're going to give an account for every idle word that we say? Do people not think that applies to social media? I received a phone call not too awfully long ago by another ministry leader who said, Pastor, I know so-and-so doesn't go to your church anymore, but we need some wisdom in how to deal with this person. This person, they're a problem. Do you have any words of wisdom for us in this regard? Just don't say anything. You're not going to win. Such persons have a pattern everywhere they go. They drop verbal bombs. It's what they do. So folks, don't even get in the muck. Your friends at school or at the office who do that sort of stuff, don't get down in the mud with them on social media. I want to make an analogy. That's what it is. It's an analogy. I'm not calling people this name it's just an analogy don't get in the pig pen with pigs what do pigs love they love mud the pig lives in the mud he loves the mud the pig loves to get you in the mud the pig loves to stay dirty he loves to get you dirty he likes it it's what he does You don't like it, but he loves it. Don't get in the mud. Think about your work. Think about everything you post, everything you do, everything you say. It's all a part of your account and my account that we're going to stand before the Bema seat of Christ one day and give an account for. Someone may ask, what's the big deal with all this? Whether it's my words, whether it's my lifestyle, whether it's immorality, impurity, greed, covetousness, foolish talk, filthy talk, all, what, what's the big deal with this anyway? Why is it, why is it such a big deal? Is it, is it blown out of proportion to make it a big deal? Well, let's see what he says in verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Does that sound like it's important? It is, isn't it? Somebody says, "Uh uh-oh, preacher, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I had an indiscretion in my marriage. My husband forgave me. My wife forgave me. But does this mean, do these two verses mean that God will never forgive me? It's not what these verses are saying at all. What these verses are talking about is somebody who lives this way. This is their lifestyle. This is their pattern. This is who they are. 
And Paul says they have no inheritance whatsoever in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Remember what I told you as I began today about the seriousness of conversion? Conversion is not simply a matter of walking an aisle, shaking a preacher's hand, filling out a commitment card. It is about a radical transformation from the inside out. Where the spirit of the living God regenerates you and makes you a whole new person. And I know the dramatics of it are different for different people. But as evidence of that transformation and that conversion there, there ought to be some kind of evidence of transformation there. If there's not, then what's that saying? It says you need to be converted. If you're living the lifestyle of an immoral person... And you're satisfied to live that way. Or a lifestyle of doing anything you want to with your words. And you just don't care. And yet you claim to be a Christian. You might want to re-examine things. You see, if you're a Christian and these sins here are in your life, you know what God's going to be doing? God's going to be taking you to the woodshed. It's what he does. Read Hebrews chapter 12. God disciplines his children. If you're without discipline, if you're without conviction and discipline over these sins, the writer of Hebrews in in chapter 12 says that's evidence that you are an illegitimate son or daughter. Christians may do these things, but God disciplines, chases, chases them, takes them to the woodshed. Until they correct it. Verse 6 is a reference in all likelihood to those at Ephesus of the Gnostic persuasion. The Gnostics were a cult group. And the Gnostics had this conviction. They taught this conviction. It doesn't matter what you do with your body. They drew a sharp distinction between the body and the soul. They said just so long as you keep up your spiritual life, it doesn't matter what you do with the flesh. They actually encouraged people to live in immorality because it gave them an excuse to live in immorality. Isn't that kind of like people today? There are people today who lower the standard on holy living because they're not living holy either. Paul says, don't let anybody deceive you with empty words for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So he says in verse 7, don't jump in there with them. In fact, verse 11, he says, even expose this kind of stuff. In other words, speak against it. Warn, warn those around you who live this way. Parents, don't make excuses for your boys and girls who are living together with their boyfriend or girlfriend. Don't make excuses. Warn them because their very soul is at stake. Warn your friends. Obviously, you got to do it in the right way, the right spirit. 
Look at verse 8, what Paul says here in verse 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. It's not that you were just in the darkness. Yes, that's true. Darkness is all around us. But Paul says here, you were darkness. It wasn't just around you in your environment. Your environment was in you. You were one with it, and it was one with you. But now, he says, you're light in the Lord. Again, it's not that as a Christian you just simply have the light of Jesus around you again that's true but he says you are light light is in you you were darkness now you are light so walk as children of light as Christians we need to watch how we live and then look at the great invitation he gives in verse 14. He's quoting from the prophet Isaiah. It is not an exact quote. It is a paraphrase. And he says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. There's a good word in that for the believer and the unbeliever, isn't there? To the unsaved, he's saying, you better wake up. You're sleeping. You're dead. You're spiritually dead. Your life proves it. Remember the old saying, if it walks like a duck, talks like a duck, smells like a duck, quacks like a duck, what is it? It's a duck. If you live like the spiritually dead, if you commit immorality and impurity like the spiritually dead, if you talk like the spiritually dead, if you joke like the spiritually dead, like I say, I'm not talking about somebody who stumbled temporarily. I'm talking about somebody that this is their lifestyle. If you live like the spiritually dead, guess what? You're spiritually dead. And you need to come to Christ. You need to awake and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. If you'll get up out of that spiritual death and say, Jesus, I don't know you. I'm dead. I'm lost. I'm on my way to hell. Lord, I want you to awaken me out of this spiritual grave and, and help me to come to you. Notice what the Bible says, Jesus will shine on you. In, very, in fact, the very fact that you are wanting to do something about your condition and you want Christ to awaken you is evidence in and of itself that Christ has already begun his work in you. How do I know that? Because dead men can't come to Christ. Why? Because they're dead. And so if you're wanting to come to Christ, you're wanting out of your spiritual death, it's only because the Holy Spirit of the living God is already at work in you, drawing you to Jesus. Jesus said, no man can come to me unless my Father's Spirit draws him. So if you want to repent and believe and come to Christ, it's because the Spirit of the living God is drawing you to him. You need to come to Christ. To the saved, verse 14 has great application too. If you're asleep and you have become more like the world than you are like Jesus, something needs to change. 
You've laid down with the dead. You're in the pig pen with them. You don't need to be there. You don't belong there. And my guess is, for a period of time now, you've probably even known that you've sensed things need to change in my life. I was radically saved back there somewhere, but I have drifted. I've become cold in my heart. I've started doing things like people in the world do, and I know it's not right. You need to repent, and you need to come back to Christ like the prodigal who was in the far country and, and came to himself and said, I've got to change. Christian, come back home. Arise, wake out of your sleep. And again, what is the promise? Christ will shine on you. Man, that ought to make a Baptist shout. Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture. Lord, we see in the Bible that you spoke to cultures, to Christians living in cultures right where they were every day. And you had some very pointed messages for them. And Lord, these very issues are still with us today. Help us to be salt and light. I pray for that one right now who knows they need to come to Christ. That with a sense of urgency, they would step out, come far and say, Pastor, I need to be saved. For that Christian who knows they need to come back home, they need to come back to Christ. Lord, with urgency, I pray that they'd step towards you and they'll find you being like that father in the story of the prodigal son who ran to meet his son. Thank you for your promise that you will shine on us if we will awake and get up and come to you. Thank you. In Christ's name we pray.